Welcome to Your Story Matters, the show where we share inspiring stories from all around the world. After you've listened to this one, why don't you tell us yours? Share your story at yourstorymatters.net. But first, here's your host, speaker and writer, Angela Schaefers. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Dyke Drummond. He is a coach, speaker and trainer and he will be sharing about his story today and how it evolved into doing what he does today to help others in a different way other than traditional medicine. Hi, Dyke. Welcome to the show. Hi, Angela. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm excited to have you share some of your story and to share some great tips with our listeners today about things that they can do to better improve their life circumstances and deal with stress. I know you have a one-minute stress relief program, and we're going to talk about that later. But before we talk about what you're doing now, I would love for you to share some of your background and history, maybe why you decided to become a doctor and how that all evolved, and then leading up to where your story took a turn. Okay, great. Yeah, um, I uh, actually work with doctors almost all the time nowadays, and one of the questions I ask them is, how did you decide to become a doctor? Mm -hmm. And uh, most people who aren't doctors think that doctors make a really clear decision on on to get this MD, like there's a light on the road to Damascus moment, or you just know you're going to be a doctor. For most doctors, it's not that way. (laughs) Most Mm -hmm. doctors sort of stumble into medical school because they haven't got anything else better to do. It's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But my personal history is that my mom had wanted to be a doctor, and her mom before that had wanted to be a doctor. And each of them, when they went to college, uh, were diverted into being uh, teachers. Mm -hmm. And in each of their hometowns, they have a school named after them, but they didn't get to be doctors. So when I was born, the firstborn male grandchild, it was pretty pretty clear what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Although we weren't weren't a good Jewish or Indian family where they would have told me that over and over and over again as I was growing up. It was never actually mentioned. But I found myself uh, at the age of 21 with a BS in biology and uh, not knowing what else to do. And I said, I'll just uh, apply at the best medical schools I can think of. And if I get an offer, maybe I'll go. Mm -hmm. And I got accepted at Mayo Mm -hmm. and went on to be a family doc. And um, because my my image of a doctor, when I think of a doctor, was always the doctor I had growing up. So Marcus Welby, family doc, Mm -hmm. little office, like the Norman Rockwell pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was a I was a successful small town family doc for ten years. I live a little north of Seattle, a little town called Mount Vernon. Um, and I was uh, the chairman of the executive committee of our fifty doctor group. And I delivered five hundred babies. And I was everything you're supposed to be as a successful small town doc. Mm-hmm. And then at the age of forty, which was fourteen years ago now. It felt like I ran into a brick wall. It's like the things that I used to enjoy, I didn't enjoy in terms of my medical practice. Mm-hmm. And I actually, can, I actually, when I look back, it sort of feels like my vision went black and white and everything started to taste like sawdust. It took me years to figure out that what I had done was completely burned out mm-hmm. because it mm-hmm. wasn't ever my real passion in the first place. It was my mom and my grandma's. Right. And so I hit a brick wall of what I now know was burnout. But at the time, since 1998, I, uh, there were no visible resources for burnout. There weren't people on the web that you could talk to. There weren't doctor coaches. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was crazy. I actually wasn't. But what I did at that point was I actually walked away from my medical career mm-hmm. and stopped being a doctor and have gone on to become an entrepreneur and a life and business coach. And I had an alternative medical practice for a while uh, doing interactive guided imagery 
and started a couple of training businesses. One of the businesses we even taught leadership and facilitation to folks in the United States military. So <laughs> I've gone on to do all sorts of other things. Wonderful. And- Let me talk to you or, or have you share rather a little bit about that transition point because I think most people would probably have the same assumption that I do that it wouldn't be easy for someone to just stop being a doctor. That would be like your whole life purpose and your role and identity would end. And what did that look like for you? Because we do want to encourage and inspire people to be their best selves and to really live their purpose. And if they're not, how does one go about unfolding and unraveling a life that you've created that wasn't working for you? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I don't consider myself to have ever quit being a doctor. There are certain things about my training in my 20s and 30s that can't be undone. There's a way I see the world that isn't going to go away. So I'm always diagnosing and treating. It's just what I do as a doctor, and that's never going to stop. But my role and the way I make money and, and the role that I play in my community is very, very different. And I can tell you that whereas some people can plan for transitions and can decide that they want to do something and do it in an orderly fashion over time according to a plan. That wasn't what I did. Mm-hmm. I simply walked away. Mm-hmm. And I had a golden handshake at the time, right? So I had a check that was coming in that was the same size as my work check for a year afterwards without having to work. Wow. So that's great, right? It's mm-hmm. also a very, very double-edged sword because uh-huh. I, really I really made no preparations to support right. my family in that year. Mm-hmm. And I ended up schlepping myself back to a dock mm-hmm. in the box and hating every second of it. Mm-hmm. But what I loved was I loved that looking at the world in a different way that wasn't disease-related. So the first thing I did, and again, I always encourage people to follow what feels right. And at the same time, if it turns out that whatever you're doing needs to make you money to support you, it's also really important to build an entrepreneur skill set, learn some sales and marketing skills at the same time. Mm-hmm. But what I did was I got certified in interactive guided imagery, which is a way for me to show people how they can use a disease or a symptom as a wake-up call to live a better life rather mm. than... Um, the disease model that we use in medicine, which is very different, where we use diseases and things we try to kill them and make them go away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't like that very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I love that you brought that aspect up, and, and we might talk about that later if we have time. But let's talk a little bit about that point of transition and change and, and you realizing that you were burned out. How did that affect your personal life and what was happening there? Did you have support in wanting to change or needing to change your life? Did you feel like some of what was happening was lack of support or lack of balance in your personal professional life? Well, and I I work with burnout doctors all the time, so everybody's story is a little different. Mm -hmm. There are certain themes, but mine was one, I believe, mostly of purpose, a burnout of purpose. So you've, I don't know if you've heard of the, the concept of flow, right? Being in the flow of mm-hmm. things. Sister Mahali has a book called Flow. It's when you lose track of time because you're so involved in doing something. Mm-hmm. I always enjoyed the intellectual challenge of medicine. And as a family doctor, behind every door, there's a different problem. You never know what's there. It's like that scene in Forrest Gump where he says, life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, right? Mm-hmm. And so I enjoyed the intellectual challenge. I really enjoyed bonding with people, getting to know them, building relationships, delivering babies, that kind of stuff. 
But at the age of 40, what happened was that things started to repeat themselves. I had been in practice for long enough that I saw patterns and things weren't as fresh or as new as they had been previously. Mm -hmm. And underneath that, I really had no underpinning of believing that this was my purpose. Mm. This was a multi-generational thing through my family that I was dreamed into. Mm-hmm. And when I lost the creative juices and when I lost the simulation, the ability to be into the flow of it at the age of about 40, which is not uncommon for doctors 10 years in, you know, the shine starts to go off of things. Mm-hmm. That's when I came to a screaming halt. At that point, my life wasn't particularly out of balance. I did have the full support of my wife. And uh, she was saying, gosh, let's get you out of here. Let's quit. Let's figure something out. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing's, nothing's worth compromising our lives and your health. And so I eventually did take a one-month sabbatical, and a couple months later, I actually quit. Mm-hmm. That's interesting and powerful that you were able to recognize what was happening and then make some changes to do something differently. And I know that's what you try and help people do is to see what it is they're actually doing with their life and their time and how to address some of those things that need to be changed. What were some of the signs or symptoms, if you will, that led you to feel that you were facing burnout and perhaps some of the signs that you see in other people that maybe we don't typically recognize? Like I said, there was a certain sense of the joy being sucked out of things. Mm-hmm. Like I like I said before, it's it, when I remember back to this time, it sort of felt like my vision was black and white, like things were grained of color. If you've ever seen the Harry Potter movies, mm-hmm. there's a character in the Harry Potter movies called the Dementor. And what the Dementor does is it sucks your soul out of your face. It's, it's sort of like that, a dried up husk, um, um, not much as any fun anymore. Um, I try and I do the same things and I just don't get any joy. I dread going into work. I'm exhausted. In my case, uh, some most of the time people in the caring professions when they're burned out get really cynical and sarcastic. I don't feel like I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, although um, uh, from my perspective, I, I could have been and not been aware of it. But it, for me, it was one of those things where getting out of bed in the morning felt like a struggle. Mm-hmm. And it had gotten to the point where the things that I would normally enjoy, like fishing or running or playing rugby or things like that, even those things had lost their ability to give me some joy, too. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had to stop. And because of that golden handshake, I was able to do that and walk away fairly briskly. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of the people I work with who, again, are facing career-threatening burnout, those are the folks that I, I work with, basically it's mental exhaustion, physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, and and this phrase often comes up, and I was saying it at that time, I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sounds right, and and we hear of people taking drastic measures when they're in those situations, so I'm glad to see that there's someone like you that can offer some, some support and help, and some of it, I think, and perhaps you agree, is teaching people to understand that they're allowed to change their mind, to change their path, to do things differently when something isn't working. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I see is that, you know, this for me, this kind of a, of a burnout in your 40s and 50s in a career is a, a variation on a midlife crisis. And, and the, the big shift that's happening 
is that up until that point in time, most of us have lived our lives according to the way it's supposed to be done, mm-hmm. right? Somebody else's rules. Right. And uh, since those rules weren't necessarily created for us, it's only the minority of people that those rules actually work for. So it's a process of us growing up, uh, coming back home again to see it again for the first time, right? It's like, like figuring out how to be a doctor in a way that works for you, your definition mm-hmm. of being a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I still consider myself to be a doctor. Right now I work with other doctors mm-hmm. <laughs> than my patients, so to speak. <laughs> but I like that. That's so powerful to be able to empower people to realize that they can do something on their own terms and make it work so that they feel content and happy and, and well in all sense of the word. And I think that's important for people to see, too, that they have, that's a choice that that all of us can make, despite our circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, what I tell people is that one of the tasks we have as human beings is to learn how to play our instrument well, Mm -hmm. just like Yo-Yo Ma plays the cello or Eric Clapton plays the guitar. We can learn over the course of our life what works really well for us and incorporate those things into everything we do, into our Mm -hmm. home life, our family life, our work life. And everybody's going to look pretty different. There's not one way to be a doctor. There's not one way to be an accountant. There's not one way to be a mom. That's right. right. That's right. What works best for you and your family. So experiment with it. And just because you were raised in a particular way or or your educational process taught you to do something a particular way doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you found working with others, doctors, and I'm sure there's other people who aren't doctors you've worked with, that there's a difference between this burnout that is sometimes experienced in the crisis that people hit at a certain point between men and women? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many differences between men and women. And I'll just quote you from the research on um, doctors, although there's no reason to believe that this particular burnout symptom complex is any different in, in anybody else, nurses, uh, lawyers, moms, dads, any, any normal person, mm-hmm. uh, because basically the men and women have different brain structure. And um, so you're going to expect that they would experience burnout differently. So burnout is typically got three symptoms. One is exhaustion. Typically it's called emotional exhaustion. The second is cynicism or sarcasm. So you start to get cynical or sarcastic about the people that you're supposed to serve. Um, and this happens in parents too, (laughs) you know, you want to smack your kid, right? And then the last one is what's called lack of efficacy, where a person will say, not only am I completely exhausted, but I'm cynical and sarcastic, and now I don't even know whether the work I do is making a difference, Mm. or I start to doubt the quality of my work. Mm -hmm. And there was a study published just last year, it was very interesting, that showed that women tend to experience those symptoms in that order. Mm -hmm. They get exhausted, they get cynical and sarcastic as a dysfunctional way to protect themselves from that drain, mm-hmm. and then they start to doubt the quality of the work they do. Mm-hmm. But they looked at the men, and the men were different. The men got sarcastic and cynical first, then became exhausted, but they never doubted the quality of the work that they did. Mm-hmm. So the men were able to stay at work despite the fact that everybody could tell they were trash and keep going and keep going and keep going. Whereas in my experience, women ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, I think that doctor, the prevalence of doctors in the United States is still tipped a little bit towards men. Mm-hmm. From my, my overstressed doctor clients, my burned out doctor clients, 85% of them are women. So mm. Women ask for help. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important thing. I think that's why they have 
you know, lower suicide rates and everything because uh, women tend to ask for help and men tend to be super lone rangers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's a good point to bring up. And that's something that I think is important that you're sharing your story and you're saying, hey, I recognize this going on with me and I did something about it. What were the things that you did that were helpful for you initially? Because I know you've established your own way of helping people yourself and coaching and training them, but how did you get help initially to turn around your situation? Oh, I got myself a coach. Okay, good. <laughs> question about that. I grabbed my bucket list and I did everything on my bucket list in that year that I had off. I got a coach. I followed something I was passionate about with my guided imagery practice. And at the same time, I realized that I had to do something different to support my family at the time because my guided imagery practice didn't, didn't replace my doctor income. So I worked part-time as a walk-in clinic doctor. At the same time, I was doing my independent practice as a coach and an imagery guide on the side. So I always had something I was passionate about going at the same time I was meeting my family's financial obligations. Mm -hmm. And then I've basically continued to follow what I was passionate about for the 14 years since then, mm -hmm. um, coaching entrepreneurs, uh, training people in leadership development, um, coaching burned out doctors for the last 18 months, mm -hmm. which has been an incredibly rewarding experience. And I think that it's really important that anybody who feels like they can't go on much longer like this mm -hmm. know that there's all, there are any one of a, of a number of alternatives available to you, but you have to take the baby steps towards what you would like to do more of. Mm -hmm. uh, keep that dream alive. Keep playing with it. Keep, keep your toe in uh, in order to have a possibility of creating a different way of being for yourself down the road. Mm-hmm. But there is obviously a difference between people who have that sense of hope and that drive to do something, even if it's a little something, and those who do nothing, who might become severely depressed or fall into addiction and things like that. What do you think is the difference? Because obviously you chose a path of continuing on and moving towards still living a life that was fulfilling and necessary for you to meet your responsibilities. Yeah, there's always, uh, it's like a tip of an iceberg, and that's true with doctors, too. There are always people who, uh, who where burnout or stress or things like that will tip them into an addiction, tip them into a depression, for doctors, tip them into a suicide, even. Mm -hmm. And I think that the most important thing for the people that I work with, when I first meet them is to determine where they are. Are they in a dangerous place? Are they using drugs, alcohol? Are they a suicide risk? And reach out and actually help them. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, especially with doctors, people won't reach out to somebody even though it's obvious they're in trouble. We have right. sort of uh, battlefield mentality. But uh, I believe that it's difficult sometimes for the person themselves to know where they are in terms of, am I going to be okay, or have I tipped over some sort of an edge? It's easier for us to come in from the outside and ask some questions and help them figure that out. Mm -hmm. It's part of what I do whenever I meet somebody for the first time, and there are certain questions I have to ask them mm -hmm. just to make sure they're in an okay place and we're going to be able to do this without you know, actually seeing a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, and good point, and I love that you shared that information because I think people need to hear that. What are some of the things that you did with your coach initially? Were you doing counseling? Were you doing journaling? 
Do you have a faith-based? Share with the listeners some of those things that really are tangible things that helped you through that early, the beginning of moving through this transition. Yeah, I mean, uh, a vision board. Absolutely. I'm looking at my vision board right now. It's got a big golden boot in the middle of it with the word Namaste across his belly button. And Deepak Chopra is in the left-hand top corner. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of yoga people. So vision board has always been important for me. I am a very active journaler. I actually have stacks of journals from years now, and I actually go back and read them every once in a while. I meditate. I do a simple breath-counting meditation for about 15 minutes a day. And uh, I think it's really, really important to be intentional. And that's what I find is the big shift in midlife, whether it's a straight-up midlife crisis or a career change or burnout or things like that. But it's going from a situation where I'm following somebody else's else's rules, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sort of on autopilot. In in the doctor's case, you're following the way you were trained. And now what I'm going to do is ask myself, wait a minute, if what I've got right now isn't what I want, what do I want? Because I actually can switch my focus from avoiding what I don't want, which is where most people are programmed, Mm -hmm. to actually creating a life that contains the things I really want. Mm -hmm. But only if I sit down and get clear on that. Right. So I do a quarterly I do a quarterly planning process. I have a vision. I have a vision board. I know where I'm going, and over time, it has become less and less less and less focused on numbers, and mm-hmm. more and more focused on what I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's the act of being intentional more often than not in my life. So intentional about year and my conversation, intentional about what I'm going to do when we're done here today, intentional mm-hmm. about where I am in my life course. Now that I woke up from this somebody else's dream that I would be a doctor. Mm. Mm. Powerful. How did you go about determining what you wanted to do to help others, which is what you do currently as far as your coaching and training? Well, with my guided imagery practice, with my coaching and with my training, it's always been a situation where I knew what I had experienced in my own life, going from a job a career to what I felt was a calling, Mm -hmm. a calling to serve in a different way than a physician serves because I feel a physician's viewpoint on things is fairly limited a lot of the time. I think there are great things that modern medicine does, but there's a lot of things that it doesn't do so well with. Mm -hmm. So I was glad to be freed from that. But um, I, I always wanted to be able to make my own way in the world as living on my own terms and that's what I've always reached out to help other people do. Mm-hmm. And normally it's a question of, one, following your passion, and two, learning an entrepreneur skill set where you can turn what you're passionate about into income mm-hmm. so that you can develop a true, what I call, and it's not my words, but a right livelihood. Not only is this what I was meant here to do, not only have I gone through some hard times in my life and learned some things that I can share with other people, but in sharing that message and putting my piece in the puzzle, Helping other people, I can also make a living doing that. That's that's an amazing way to live. Absolutely, and I love that you're here to share some of your story with us today. And I know that it will help others to be encouraged and inspired that there is hope to turn things around and to change things that aren't feeling right for you or creating the happy life that we all deserve and desire. At some at some place, we all desire that, even if we haven't admitted it yet. Can you talk about some of the things you do as a coach and a trainer and how you help others, if you would give the listeners some idea of what they could expect in working with you or what you have to share with them? 
Well, uh, the first thing that I do is I come in and help you do a thing that's called the Wheel of Life. It's sort of like a CAT scan for your whole life because a lot of times when people come in and they say, hey, it's my career, that's where the problem is, that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we do, we do a quick 360 to check every place in your life to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then basically what we do is we grab the lowest hanging fruit. Because here's one of the realities of human behavior. We're hardwired to avoid things that are dangerous. We're hardwired to avoid the things that we don't like. So the biggest problems in your life are probably the ones you're avoiding the most. And when you've turned to face them and make even a little difference in the biggest problems in your life, it'll make a massive difference in your day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically Absolutely. we go head we go head on at whatever seems to be the place that could give you the most benefit the quickest. And I have dealt with work challenges, family challenges, I've delivered 500 babies. There's nothing that I haven't helped people go through or gone through myself. Mm-hmm. And so there's all sorts of ways, especially if you're working with somebody once a week, which is what a coach does. We're on the phone for an hour once a week. You've got backup. You've got an accountability buddy. You've got a brainstorming partner. There's literally nothing we can't face up to and make a difference in fairly quickly once you decide to create that kind of a support system and a team for you. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. It really does. But let's talk about going back to the beginning of realizing there need to be changes made. How have you dealt with yourself and help others to deal with things like a sense of failure, fear, conflict, whatever it could be that's really preventing someone from living the better life and the life they should be living? Yeah, fear is an interesting thing. We're hardwired for that for sure. Here's what I'll, I'll tell you. Um, there's two there's there's two things to be aware of. If you are standing in one place and you want to be someplace else, so let's say I've got a job and, and, I, and, I, and I'm working for somebody else and I want to start my own business, your mind will do what's called telescoping. It'll see where you're standing and it'll see where you want to be with your own business and it will make it feel like want, you're on one rim in the Grand Canyon and that place that you'd like to be is over all the way on the other side and that you're going to run and jump and go die. And you should, mm-hmm. You're never going to get there, so don't even start, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that I tell people is that telescoping is a natural thing that your brain will do. It will see this huge gap between where you are and where you want to be. But the key is if you're feeling that fear and it's such that it's stopping you, you're contemplating taking too big a step. So just look down at your feet. Mm-hmm. So here's a question I would have. If somebody is listening and, and they say, well, I have a job and I'd really like to make a living um, as a florist. I don't know. I'm just bringing that up as an example. Mm-hmm. Here's my question. What's the smallest step, the smallest step that you could do in the direction of becoming a florist today? Mm-hmm. The smallest little thing you could do. Well, I could go outside and sniff a rose, right? Okay, great. Mm-hmm. When are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or I could go online and see how many florists there are in my town and maybe call one. Is that scary? No, that's, that's a small enough step. Great. When are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that when you take the first step is when the second step will appear. Mm-hmm. But until sense. you take the first, until you take that first step, you won't know what to do next. And until you take that first step and tell people what you're doing and why, there's no way that they can help you. But as soon as they know, 
I have a job. I really want to be a florist. This is my heart's desire, and this is why I'm taking this action. People will pile in to help you reach your goal. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense, and I totally believe that. So it sounds like what you're saying, and probably what you did yourself, was to just not only reevaluate and figure out what it was that you needed and wanted to make things work for you, but to just start taking some sort of action towards meeting those goals and to find the place that felt better for you. Right. I mean, you have to take action. You can't get a different result in your life if you don't take action. That's the definition of insanity, mm-hmm. doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So when I first quit, quit my medical practice, I went to a conference and I saw people doing guided imagery and I said, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I instantly got certified. Yeah, if you don't know you can't do something, it's real easy to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. Tell the listeners a little bit more about one of the programs you developed. I know you've developed a lot of programs and done many wonderful things. Tell us about the One Minute Stress Relief Program. Okay, so when you talk about burnout, especially in doctors, the most uh, widely researched and most effective technique for dealing with that is something called mindfulness, which is typically taught in meditation. And typically when you're learning mindfulness, the first thing they'll ask you to do is sit down and meditate for 15 minutes or a half hour or an hour. They do silent retreats and all this kind of stuff. That's typically how it's taught. But doctors don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that for doctors and nurses and most anybody, right, we don't know we're stressed Mm -hmm. until we're really stressed. Mm -hmm. It's too late. And if you look at mindfulness training, if you look at world-class athletes, if you look at meditators, what you'll notice is the way that they release stress to come back to be completely present in this moment is always by using some sort of breathing technique. Mm -hmm. And if you watch yourself, you'll notice that what you do to settle yourself down, let's say if you've got a speaking engagement or an important meeting or you're in a sports event, what you're going to do is take a great big deep breath and let go. And that's how you're going to settle yourself. So what I've done is taken a single breath, a conscious breath, I call it squeegee breath, where basically you're going to inhale to the top of your head and pause for two seconds. And exhale all the way to the tips of your toes and pause for two seconds. And as you exhale, you're going to imagine this squeegee wiping you clean. Mm. You're going to give up any fear or stress or thoughts or worry or aches or pains to the squeegee that wipes the window of your awareness clean. And become completely present right here in this moment. And over time, you can really release with that breath. It's a conscious breath. And what I teach doctors to do is, look, you can't wait till you're stressed. And you can't wait till you feel like you need it mm-hmm. to do it. you got to get out ahead of it. Mm-hmm. So what I teach them to do is to pick something they do multiple times in the day. It's called a super habit. With doctors, it's easy. Something like washing your hands, right? You're going to do that with every patient. Pick that to trigger you to do the squeegee breath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that if you say 12 patients a day, you might take 12 or 14 squeegee breaths and never really get stressed because you're dumping it, releasing it, and letting it go before you even notice it's accumulating. Right, right. That makes sense. And a lot of that goes back to being aware of what we're feeling and thinking and what's going on for us individually. Well, and you really can't be aware of what you're thinking and feeling if you're in the middle of living it. 
Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that this breath allows you to do is to create some separation between your thoughts and your feelings, mm-hmm. right, and your physical reality. I, what I, the way I describe it to my clients is that oftentimes it's like we're floating down a river. The river is our thoughts and feelings, and we're in a raft, and we don't have a lot of control over this. It's carrying us away. Mm-hmm. When you learn how to do the squeegee breath, when you learn how to meditate, what you're doing is basically stepping onto the side of this stream and watching it go by, but not being carried away. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, and very good visual to think about it that way. Dyke, thank you so much for sharing a part of your story and for sharing some great tips and thoughts about the process of creating the life that we desire and living our life of purpose. How would others reach you and find out more about what you're doing and connect with you further? Yeah, I work almost exclusively with folks in healthcare these days. My website is called the happymd.com. So the word the, T-H-E, happy, and then MD as in medical doctor, MD, thehappymd.com. And I have a whole bunch of free training in leadership development and a thing I call the satisfaction mind flip that gives you the ability to see what's going right in your life really clearly. And uh, the one that stress relief program is there. And for anybody who is listening and has a friend who's in healthcare, doctor, nurse, healthcare administrator that that is saying things like, I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. I offer them a free session, an hour long, just so I can help them create a strategic plan to be feeling better fast. And there's all sorts of resources at that site that even though they were developed specifically for doctors, they'll work for anybody in any area of your life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And I did see you had several great things when I went to your site myself and, and very helpful for many people who are going through Life stuff, tragic stuff, whatever in between, it can definitely help to find ways to deal with it and to learn a different way to handle stress, anxiety, fear, those types of things. So again, thank you so much for sharing and for all that you're doing to help others, especially all those medical personnel that are helping other people in turn and and have such an arduous task in front of them every day. Yep. <laughs> There's plenty of people who could use what I offer in healthcare, absolutely. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the show here with you. You're very welcome. So glad we've connected. Thanks, Dyke.